You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We're in this series called Jesus Stories. And the beautiful thing about this series called Jesus Stories, we've talked almost all year that the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. And that's why people, when they tell their story, they, they tell their story, and if they don't have an impression of how their story fits within the big story of God, they tell you their story, and when it comes to setbacks, disappointments, trials, you hear people as they tell you your story, they're trying to make sense of it, but it doesn't really make sense because they don't know why. They don't know why this thing happened or how this fits into a bigger picture. They're reaching. They want it to have some meaning, but they don't know how. They don't know how. Because the story of you only makes sense if you understand the big story of God. So how do you describe your trials, your tests, your tribulations in a way that makes sense unless you understand that maybe perhaps God is in it? That maybe sometimes in your life he calls time out. That maybe sometimes in your life, he wants to address something that's going on in your life that you don't understand because as you tell your story, it seems pretty black and white. But when you get to those moments where you're tried, you're tested, we need the spirit of the living God to give us insight into how our story fits into the big story of God. So Jesus, as he was having a teaching ministry on earth, as he began to become the one ushering in the kingdom of God come to earth, he begins to tell some stories. There are moments where Jesus said, once upon a time. But he does it with a purpose, and Jesus tells stories so that you understand how your story fits within God's story. So that you understand what are God's expectations for you and for your life. And so that you understand what does God actually value. Because sometimes we put on God what we think he values. But it may not be what he values at all. And one of the things that God values greatly is justice. Are you glad about that? I mean, think for a minute. Are you glad that God values justice? That God is all about justice. He is just. Like, people want God to be so loving and they forget that God is equally just as he is loving. That he's all about justice. He wants things made right. In fact, so much so that he's willing to take upon himself our sin out of his great love so that we could be with him forever in heaven. But he didn't just love us into heaven. He also had to walk through justice, which demanded that our sin be accounted for, that he became the atonement for our sin. He values justice. God's ears hear the cry of the poor and the oppressed. He sees the injustices that have been leveled against you, and he is the God who sees. It's one of his names in Hebrew that he's He's Lahoi Roy, and he's the God who sees. He basically is the one who sees everything that's happened to you. The things that have been good, the things that have been unjust, the bad things that have happened, he sees it, and he hears your cries. He is the one who discerns the thoughts and the motivations behind all that we do and all that is done against us. Nothing is hidden from God. He cares deeply about justice. One of the things that happens is that money and justice often go hand in hand, don't they? Right? Money and justice go hand in hand. Money is one of the issues that brings out the best in a person or the worst in a person. When someone meddles with your money or they cheat you or they deny you what is owed you, you can hardly think straight about anything else, right? You just think what is owed you and you get so frustrated. I mean, couples fight more about money than they fight about religion or politics or which way to hang the toilet paper or what the thermostat should be set at. Money is one of those things that just brings out the best or the worst in a person. 
And Jesus at this point is now wandering around. He's teaching the multitude, the crowds that are coming from all over to hear him. But also the religious leaders are there standing, listening, trying to test him and trap him and judge him. But Jesus is there and he's teaching. And he has just been teaching the audience about hypocrisy, about religious persecution, about fearing for your life. And then he's teaching them that, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes and you are taken, you're dragged into the courts, God's Holy Spirit will give you words to say before those who judge you in the courts so that you don't have to think up for yourself what you're going to say when you were unjustly dragged into court. He's just been teaching about all these different things that is a theme of justice. And standing in the crowd is a man who is wondering if Jesus is just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on. Because this man has come from his home. He's come here today to listen to Jesus, but he's come for a very different reason. He doesn't care about what happens when you get dragged in the courts. He doesn't care about these things. He has come here today to interact with Jesus for one reason. And Jesus to him just seems like he's talking on and on and on. And in a moment when Jesus pauses in his talking, this man blurts out a question. If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you? So this guy talks about inheritance. You ever had any family drama over inheritance? You ever watched other people just get so frustrated, like they were all calm and cool and collected, somebody died, and then brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and family members get really weird with each other when it comes to inheritance. How do I know? One of the ways I know is that my brother is a living trust attorney. So I get to hear stories from him all the time about people who simply can't get along over the issue of money. And so this man is in the crowd, and he blurts out, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, write this down. What is an inheritance but the surplus leftover of another life? It's the surplus leftover of another life. Now, this is a very simple thing that Jesus could have done. Jesus could have just heard the one request from this brother and said, maybe even found the other brother and said, hey, just divide it with him. Why are you holding back? It's very easy for Jesus to say. In fact, in that culture, the inheritance wouldn't be divided until the firstborn, the older brother, was ready to divide it. He wasn't obligated to divide it yet. But here the younger brother is basically frustrated. And so as he's doing, he's going to a higher authority, a higher teaching. He's coming to Jesus and he's saying, can I just get what is owed me? The inheritance wouldn't be split until this older brother agreed. Now, interesting, this man is not asking Jesus to reconcile the brothers because they're fighting over money. See, the relationship is probably already damaged. It's probably already split. And so this man is coming and saying, okay, since relationally we can't work it out together, Jesus, I need your help to get it to work out. And he wants what's owed him no matter what it does to the relationship. He's more actually interested in getting the inheritance than reconciling, it seems, with his brother. My brother, like I say, is a living trust attorney. He told me one time that uh, in court he watched this thing happen where people were arguing 
over what was owed them within a, a trust. And part of that trust was a laundry machine. Let's say it's a dryer. And it was one of those old dryers that only runs on quarters. And they're in court and the, the one, they're arguing over what is in the change box in that dryer. So they're in court and, and the, you know, they're arguing over it. And the judge looks at the one guy who's bringing all this up and he says to him, listen, uh, how much money do you think could actually be in that change box? If it was full, how much money would be in there? The guy's like, mm, probably 150 bucks. The judge looks around and says, there are three lawyers present today in this courtroom. They charge a couple hundred dollars per hour each for their time, yet you're demanding your part of 150 bucks. Yes, the man says, that's why I'm here. The judge says, oh, I see. So this really isn't about the money. It's about taking a pound of flesh. To which the man said, exactly, I want what's owed me. Crazy, right? You're spending away the inheritance to get the little portion that you think is yours. You're basically giving the inheritance to the attorneys. And this man is coming before Jesus and saying, I want what's owed me. Tell my brother to give me what I deserve. What's interesting is this, when you trust God to be your source, and this happens when you and I, like when we tithe, we have to. There's no other way. When you take that risk, that leap of faith to actually tithe 10% joyfully, what happens in that moment is you've got to trust God to be your source because you're giving away a part of your income. You're giving back to the Lord the first of what belongs to him. You're giving that away, and all of a sudden you're like, God, you've got to be. You have got to show up or I'm not going to make it. But when you do that and you experience the blessing of that, you begin to realize God is my source. And when God is your source, then everything comes from him, including inheritance. And God knows the right timing. And sometimes you and I have begged God, can you just get the family to stop fighting and give us the inheritance? You know, many times... What happens when a living trust uh, is happening and uh, someone's passed away and there's an inheritance? You know why the family fights a lot of times when that happens? Because in most cases, they've already spent what's owed them. They've pre-spent it. They don't even have it yet, but they've spent it. Either they've spent it in their mind or they've actually spent it anticipating that the timing would work in their favor. And now they got debtors and they got collection and, and, and they're basically waiting. And so, of course, perhaps that's the condition of this man, that he spent his inheritance uh, anticipating that it would come and it just hasn't come yet. Write this down. Jesus is all about justice, but he is much more interested in the motives for which you fight for justice. The motive. How do we understand the motive? We ask the question, why? Jesus will deeply probe the cause. Why are you fighting against an issue? Why are you fighting for an issue? Right, I see this all the time, and you do too, in social media, right? 
an issue comes up and it becomes popularized and then people post all the time, well, I'm fighting for this issue too. That seems unjust. I'm on board. I feel the same way. I'm fighting for it too. And in reality, sometimes our motive is simply to say, look at me. I'm fighting for something that's unjust. I want everybody else to think and know that I'm on the side of justice. And it's very self-serving. What's your motive for fighting for that issue or fighting against that issue? Let's talk about some money issues. Why are you fighting for equal pay? Is equal pay important? I believe it is. Absolutely. But the question is, why are you fighting for equal pay? If Jesus were to ask you, why, why are you fighting for equal pay? It's not that the issue is unimportant. It's an important issue. But why are you fighting for it? Is it self-serving in any way? Why are you fighting for lower taxes? Listen, I pay at the gas pump just like you do, and I know how much in the state of California we upcharge because of taxes on our gas. And then I pay taxes like you do in other areas too. You go to the Midwest and, you know, dollars, you know, a gas is $2 and something a gallon. Wouldn't that be nice? Same gallon as a gallon here, just a big different price. But the question is, why are you fighting for lowered taxes? Why are you? What's your motive? Why are you fighting for an issue? Why are you fighting for against something? Jesus sees the sickness behind the demand for justice. Jesus immediately sees the heart condition and begins to address that motive, and he'll do the same thing with you and with me. Why are you so upset about this money issue? Why are you fighting for this issue or that issue? Is it an important issue? Probably, but why are you doing it? And that's exactly what Jesus begins to do with this man. Why are you making me an arbiter between you and, this, and your brother? Could Jesus have easily answered the question? Yes, but Jesus moves toward the sickness behind the question. So let me ask you, why are you asking for God for riches? Is it so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures? Jesus, the brother, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, basically says this in the book of James, chapter four, verse three, he says, when you ask, he's talking about prayer, you're praying to God, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Do you understand that God is looking and saying, your motives behind your asking matter to me? I want to address the sickness behind the motive, the sickness behind the question, the sickness of why you are asking for justice. And sometimes we're asking in a very pure and right way, good motives. But when we're not, Jesus is going to move toward that issue in our heart. So write this down. Our problem in light of the gospel is that each of us overestimates what is due him or her in comparison with what is due to your neighbor. Listen, the gospel is all about God's good news, that he loved us, that he cared for us, that he gave himself for us, and that he's given everything for us, and then we give our lives to him, and we're to love him with all of our heart, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. What happens is we overestimate our love for ourselves, and we lessen the love that we're to give to our neighbor. We overestimate what is owed us, and we underestimate what our obligation is to do for our neighbor. 
Next week, we'll talk about who your neighbor actually is. Here's why you need this sermon. You're accountable to God for all that you own. That's why you need it. So now, with this context, with understanding the background, Jesus begins to tell a story. In Luke 12, verse 15, he says this. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So basically, what has he done? He's revealed before everybody that the possibility is that this young man is greedy. And he wants to have an abundance of possessions and that the inheritance are his means to have a lot. So he's saying, watch out. Be careful because greed is sneaky. Greed is sneaky. It's a motive that goes somewhere deep down inside of us and it works its way up and sometimes it could come out under the pretense of justice. He goes on and says this, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So what happens? Somewhere along the timeline of your life, you come into some surplus. And with the, you come into extra surplus and you begin to think, what should I do with my extra? You might want to write that down. Right? Surplus happens. And all of a sudden you think, what should I do with my extra? I have a little bit extra margin compared to where I've been before. And I might want to actually have that right in there. What should I do with my extra? Well, people do a lot of things with their extra. They upgrade their life and the extra evaporates. They kind of just say, well, I'm going to spend, but I'm going to spend just a little bit more at the same level as my extra. And what happens? The extra evaporates. Some people store it away. Some people buy more insurance with it. Some people buy expensive food or drink and they literally digest their extra away. That's what happens. Other people flaunt it, right? I've got extra, I'm gonna flaunt it. Other people hide it. And they, they just pretend, well, I'm, just, I'm pretending I'm just barely getting by, but they know all along they've stored away extra. And other people just blow through it. They maybe even try to exert power or buy power with extra in their lives. But immediately we see that this man thinks that the surplus crop that God has given him is his. Let me ask you this. Did, did the man work harder for a better crop? No. It, 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 the work's the same. You gotta till the soil, you gotta plant the seed, you gotta have it be watered, you have to harvest it, but it doesn't matter. Like the, the difference is the growth. The difference is what happens in the ground and who controls that? God controls that. Did the man work harder for it? No. All of a sudden, he just had an abundant harvest compared to the harvest he had had maybe for years. This particular year was just a good year. Did he work harder for it? No. The land just produced a better crop, and who's the giver? God is the giver. 
He says, I'll take barns, I'll tear down my barns, I don't have enough space, I'll build bigger barns, and then I'll store up more for myself. And Augustine said this, and I want you to hear this quote. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. And as Jesus tells the story, this man consults no one. He doesn't consult other people, doesn't consult other people in his life. He just has a dialogue with himself, right? He says, it's my crop, my barns, my grain, my goods, and I will be good with myself or my soul. It's all about him. Write this down. The foolproof plan to live with ease, to eat, drink, and rejoice, or be merry, is in fact the plan of the fool. In every opportunity, this man is rich toward himself. He's a landowner. He's isolated. So interesting. He doesn't talk to anybody. There's kind of no one in his life to talk to. He ha- there's no mention of family. There's no mention of maybe I'll share with my employees who actually probably planted the crop. There's no consideration that his days are numbered and he dismisses accountability to God for all that he owns. It's all about him. It's all about just, hey, extra is for me. And it's a dry life, and it's a dry living. That foolproof plan is, in fact, the plan of the fool, because the fool thinks only of himself or herself. God wants more from us. Why? Write this down. A soul created imago Dei, which means the image of God, will never be satisfied with self-indulgence. You can indulge and indulge and indulge and your soul will not be satisfied. You'll always be seeking for more. How do I know that? Because you have a hundred movies and you have nothing to watch. Because you have a closet full of clothes and you have nothing to wear. Because we live in indulgence and somehow that you just can't have enough. It doesn't satisfy. We're always looking for new. We're always looking for better. What we have doesn't seem to satisfy. And what happens is you wander the mall looking for your next purchase. And maybe for some of you, you, you research online and decide, what would I purchase next so that when the extra comes, I will have something to spend it on already. I've already done the research. Why? Because the soul is never satisfied with self-indulgence. It doesn't satisfy. The accumulation of many possessions doesn't satisfy a person created in the image of their father, God. Stuff can't do it. But you're hungry. This man said, I, had, I have plenty of grain. I have grain for years and years and years. I've got enough for myself for years and years and years. But he's still hungry to indulge himself. Let me ask you, what are you hungry for? What are you so hungry for? And sometimes we're hungry for things and we just spend to try to satisfy the hunger, but it doesn't work. It's like taking grain and saying, I'm full and packing more grain into your stomach. You're choking on more grain than your stomach can hold. You're forgetting the poor. You're forgetting the oppressed. And you think you're fighting for justice when in reality you're living the life of a fool. Jesus literally says, this is the worst plan it's the plan of the fool. It's, it's literally stupid. That plan, that thinking, that self-indulgence, it's foolish, Jesus is saying. 
But let me be honest with you. Every financial planner sells that plan. They promote that plan. Put enough away for yourself. Live for all your golden years. You get your golden years and you're like, they're actually kind of my rusty years because my body's wearing out and my things I want to do, is, is, they're not the golden years, right? But they put that up there like you got to give everything toward this and everything toward that. Now let me tell you, is financial planning so that you can take what you have and let that money earn more money so that you can actually give more and offer more? Is that a good plan? Yes. Financially plan to let your money grow, but don't let your money grow just to spend more on yourself. Let your money grow so that you have something to offer to those in need while your needs are being taken care of. People will read this and be like, is God saying like, don't buy inheritance, like don't uh, give your kids an inheritance? Like just die poor and leave your kids nothing? No, the Bible's very clear that we're to leave an inheritance to our kids. That's a godly thing to do. So let me tell you, buy life insurance but let your money grow in a way so that you can share more and you can give away more, take care of your kids, but don't give maybe everything to them. Or don't make everything where you just spend it on yourself. How can you and I financially plan in a way that isn't the plan of the fool? Being rich toward yourself and poor toward God will never, ever satisfy your soul. It just can't. It won't do it. So what is Jesus saying? Be rich toward God and store it for yourselves treasure in heaven. It'll never perish or spoil or fade. It can't be robbed. Make sure you consider the kingdom of God. Why is this man who's asking the question of Jesus, why are his actions unjust? Why is his plan criticized by Jesus? Well, his plan's criticized by Jesus because his very life is on loan from God and not just the good things he had received. Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. Write this down. Your life is on loan from God just like your stuff. You don't know your time. And neither do I. And it's a little sensitive for me this morning because a guy we were reaching out toward across the street at the Starbucks who was on staff there took his life. And we just learned about it. So it's a little sensitive for me this morning because I was thinking of inviting the guy to my circle group and I don't know why I delayed. We don't know our time. We don't know when our life will be demanded from us. We always assume we have more time, don't we? That's why when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you wonder, is this it? But it's there that we find God. Well, fear, fear no evil. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. But if you've been rich toward yourself and poor toward God, that's a scarier valley. And that's why Jesus is saying to him, you fool. You don't know when your life will be demanded from you. Yourself, your soul, he says, is demanded from you. 
then who will get what you thought was yours? Obviously, the answer is not you. You're going to store up in all these barns and all this grain, this surplus that came. This night, your life will be demanded for you. Who's going to get it? The point is, you're not going to get what you thought and what you were planning to be yours. Indirectly, Jesus is saying to the guy who demanded justice, Jesus, tell my brother to, to share the inheritance with me. Jesus is indirectly saying this. He's saying, well, suppose you win your fight for the inheritance. What then? What then? Look beyond your earthly life plan. To whom will your inheritance someday belong? In other words, let's say you win. Let's say that someone tells your brother to divide the inheritance with you, and he does. He's saying, listen, both brothers need to consider how to be rich toward God in addition to being taking care of their needs and, and having extra in their lives. Like, you need to consider how, what you're going to do with your extra. Both brothers need to. And that's what Jesus is actually addressing here because at this point, Jesus is revealing that the desire for the inheritance was the current plan was only to spend on himself. And Jesus is saying, could there be another plan? Is there a wiser plan? Is there a plan that says, I can be rich toward God, and I can be rich toward others, and I can have enough? But sometimes we don't even consider that equation because we consider more what is owed us than we think, what is my obligation as a kingdom follower, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to my neighbor? So he's saying this, look beyond your life. Look beyond yourself, and you will satisfy your soul and store it for yourself treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying there's a better plan. There's a better way. Listen, I haven't met many demon-possessed people, but I've met a lot of people possessed by their possessions. And both require freedom. The demon-possessed person and the person like you and me who can get possessed by our possessions. And Jesus looks beyond that. So if you are rich towards yourself, but you've been poor toward God is what he is indicating with this man. And he's saying, listen, now is the time to change that. Before you get the inheritance, perhaps you should reconsider. Before you get the inheritance, you should pre-decide, how am I going to be rich toward God and rich toward others and take care of myself because right now, the current plan is only being rich toward yourself. And to whom will someday that pass to? Obviously not you. Write this down. If you only work for self, you will fail to acquire wealth for God. And it's not that God needs your wealth. It's saying that when we return to God what is his, when we are rich toward God, we actually store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. But if you're only rich toward yourself, you fail to be rich toward God. So you're going to work, and you're going to work hard to acquire wealth for yourself on earth, but listen, you and I, we're going to leave it on earth, and we're not going to acquire anything in heaven if we're only rich toward self. That's the way that works. So whether you get your inheritance or not, both brothers must recognize that it all belongs to God, and it's on loan to them, including their life, their stuff, their inheritance, their life. It's all from God, and it's all on loan to them, and they must be good stewards of earthly wealth because of heavenly accountability and for heavenly reward. 
Paul said this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. He said, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal what? Inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Is Jesus the arbiter? Yes. Is Jesus the mediator? Yes. But he's the mediator between us and between God. And Jesus says, I paid it all on the cross. I've given my life for their greed. I've given my life for their sin. I've given my life for their self-indulgence. I've given my life for their bad motives. I've given my life for their selfishness. And I've canceled out all that on the cross so that before God, I now am the mediator who says the debt has been paid and they are free and they are alive and they in fact get the inheritance of the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful picture that he gives us. But the question is, have you given your life to God? And having given your life to God, are you being rich toward God or just rich toward yourself? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want you to think only about your life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to consider what God's Holy Spirit maybe has been leaning on you today. Maybe he's saying, listen, you're being rich toward yourself, but you have forgotten the kingdom of God. You're planning, but you're living the plan of the fool. And all your stuff is on loan to you from me, but also your life is on loan to me. And you don't know when the time comes that that life will be recalled. So live with purpose. Don't live the plan of the fool. Consider how you can be rich toward God not just rich toward yourself. But maybe some of you in this room, you're not a believer yet. You've never given your life to Christ. You didn't realize that he died on the cross to forgive you of your sin, to be the mediator between you and God and to offer you eternal life in heaven, an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. And if that's you today, you want your sins forgiven, right where you're seated, will you just pray a prayer like this after me to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I admit I have lived for myself and it has not satisfied my soul. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Wash me as white as snow. Make my life count for your kingdom. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Believers in the room, as we just continue this time of prayer, would you just make a step toward God? Would you just say, God, I need to make some changes. God, I need to make an actual plan to be rich toward you because I've been rich toward myself. Some of you are gonna say, God, I need to take steps to financial peace and get out of debt so that I actually have something to share. And others of you are gonna say, God, I'm gonna start tithing even while I'm in debt because you're my source and you'll help me get out of debt faster as I honor you than if I try to do it on my own and I don't. So you make that decision right now with the Lord. God, we thank you for your unlimited creativity. We thank you, God, that you move beyond our external symptoms to the source of the sickness in our heart. 
And God, we love that you love us like that, that you step toward us, that you draw us out, that you care for us. God, help us to not only share and be rich toward you, but God, help us to share the good news with those who were lost because you know the time that they go home to you. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. And together, God's people, we said, amen. Amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing in our hearts and through his word among us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.